Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 28. And we will be reading from, starting in verse 17 to verse 31 of the end of the book. We come to the end of our series in Acts. So Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 17. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The grass withers, the flower flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. And we pray now, God, for your blessing in the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. May my words be your words. May we learn your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The hardest thing for an audience that is really into a story to deal with is a cliffhanger. 30 years ago, tomorrow, on May 3rd, 1991, everybody wanted to know what happened to J.R. in the series finale of the long-running television program, Dallas. Just very uh, providential 
as I was looking for cliffhangers, it just so happened that 30 years ago tomorrow, everyone wants to know what happened to JR. As we come today to the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, and we come now to the final paragraph of the book and to the conclusion of our series in Acts, we end on what seems like a cliffhanger. Now, throughout our study, we have seen the history of the early church. Uh, The book begins with our risen Lord giving the apostles the instruction to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book has been the fulfillment of that commission. As men such as Peter and Stephen, Philip, Barnabas and Paul preach the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout Asia, Galatia, Bithynia, Macedonia, Greece, and all the way to Rome. Jesus, we see, was building his church, gathering people into his kingdom. But as Acts ends, there is a sense in which the story is incomplete. It's incomplete because what happens to Paul is not recorded. We don't get to see him witnessing to Caesar. We don't learn of his fate. Is he released? Is he executed? What happens to Paul? The story is incomplete in another way. Because this was really just the beginning of the story of the New Covenant Church. The church, you see, continued to spread and grow even after the apostles left the scene. And in a very real sense, you and I are a continuation of that story. The story of God's work is still being written as church history continues, as new Bible-preaching churches are established as people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, as the work of missions goes to all of the nations globally. Acts is the end of the biblical account of the early portion of the history of the church, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is still at work today. The church is still growing. The church is still expanding. The gospel is going forth. The Covenant Reformed Church is a part of that story. All biblical churches are part of that story. It's God's story. Last week we saw Paul finally arrive in Rome. It was... Uh, quite, uh, quite a journey for him. We see him at a particularly low point after his arrest. The Lord Jesus came to him and said in Acts twenty three eleven, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. 
Paul was able to rest in the promises of his Savior. And so he was there in Rome. And he was prepared to do whatever it was that Jesus had called him there to do. He would testify to Christ. Just as he had testified in Jerusalem, he would do so now in Rome. And so here, this is really where we pick things up in verse 17. Now, as we've seen, actually, throughout this study, Paul's general procedure, when he came, anytime he came to a new place, was first to get in touch with the local Jewish community. And so, three days after arriving in Rome, Paul met with the local Jewish leaders. However, because of his circumstances, you know, normally we would see him going to the synagogue, but his circumstances didn't allow him to do that. He was under house arrest. And so um, many of the prominent Jews from Rome came to him. And as they were gathered with him, he said in verse 17, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, you'll see that Paul addresses them as brothers. He still sees himself as a part of the Jewish community. And after this brief introduction, he then goes on to summarize the course of events that had brought him to where they were now as he was a prisoner in the hands of the Romans. Now, Paul was not guilty of any offense. He had not sinned against the Romans, nor had he sinned against the nation of Israel. He had done nothing against the people or the customs or the forefathers. He was, he was innocent of all charges, and yet he was being delivered as a prisoner. He had been treated unfairly. In fact, he explains in verse 8, he had been examined, I'm sorry, verse 18, he had been examined thoroughly by the various authorities. He had been questioned, and yet they found nothing deserving Death. He had appeared before the Roman centurion. He had appeared before the governor Festus. He appeared then before the, the next governor, Felix. He appeared before King Agrippa. And all of these examinations found that he had done nothing wrong. After his trial before Festus and King Agrippa, he would have been set free except that he had appealed to Caesar. Because, he says, the Jews had objected. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem were adamant that he was guilty of crimes against the Jewish people and against the Roman authorities. And so, he appealed to Caesar. Even though he knew he had done nothing against his nation. Now the question that many ask, and surely was in the mind of Festus and Agrippa, was why? Why appeal to Rome when you could have been set free? He did this because he needed to establish his innocence. There's a sense in which he needed to clear his name. Even though though after all these trials, they still didn't find that he had done anything wrong, he still felt it was necessary to appeal to the highest court of the state. And the only court left, of course, was Caesar's. Thus, this is where he makes his appeal. Now, Paul, 
was in Rome, and his desire was, of course, he had appealed to Caesar, and he would appear before Caesar. But before he was to speak to Caesar, he first desired to speak to his fellow Jews in Rome. Now, one might ask, why would Paul desire to speak with the Jewish leaders? After all, wasn't the Jews in Jerusalem, were they the reason that he was in this mess to begin with? Why go to the Jews in Rome? Why seek an audience with them? Well, there's probably at least two reasons. There's probably more than that, but a couple of reasons. One, and I think most importantly, he he wanted to share the gospel with them. He wanted them to know Jesus Christ. Second, he wanted them to know the reason that he was in the position that he was in. Look at verse 20. He says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Speaking about Christ, the hope of Israel, the reason he's in chains is because of Christ. He wants them to know Christ. Though the the Jews objected to Paul, which is to say they took legal cause against him, Paul had no issues with the Jews. You will notice that he presents no charges against the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. He doesn't say anything against them at all. Nor does he refer to he doesn't refer to them in any way negatively. He simply wants his people to know Jesus Christ. And so this is the reason he speaks of the hope of Israel. This is why he's in chains. He's in chains for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's in chains on account of Christ who has come to set sinners free. Now what's kind of strange about this account is... The Jewish leaders in the, in the synagogue in Rome had not received any communication from Jerusalem. They had no idea why Paul was there. They had received no letters. They had gotten, gotten really no reports which were specifically against Paul. There was nothing. And, and this is really quite surprising. We know that the Jewish authorities in Judea were strongly opposed to Paul and to Christians in general. And they were very well aware that Paul appealed to Caesar. They would have known that he was going to Rome. And and there was a a strong connection between the Jews in Rome and the Jews in Jerusalem. So why did they say nothing? Why did they send no letter? It's, It's very odd. Well, perhaps they had sent a letter. It simply had not arrived. Uh, you know, uh, particularly because you consider the, the difficulties of winter travel, it may be simply that it hadn't arrived yet. Keep in mind what happened to Paul's ship. He was shipwrecked. It's also possible that a letter was sent and it was simply lost at sea. We don't, we don't really know the reason. Perhaps they thought it was simply a waste of time to appeal much further against Paul. They had played their hand as far as they could, and they didn't want to risk drawing the ire of Caesar. After all, Paul was now out of the way. He was being shipped as a prisoner to Rome. Maybe they, possibly, they thought, well, it's sort of pointless. 
We don't have answers to these questions. We can really only speculate. What we do know is they had no letter. They had no. They didn't know anything about what was happening with Paul or why he was there. And so, without a message from Judea, the Jewish leaders in Rome, they didn't want to commit themselves one way or the other to Paul. They were not opposed to him per se, but they were not his allies either. But they did want to hear from him. And they, because they had heard about the sect, they'd heard about Christianity, and they had heard that it was spoken against. And so they wanted to hear from Paul. Now, they don't know anything specifically about Paul or why he's there, but they were familiar with Christianity. They were familiar with opposition. And, of course, there were Christians in Rome, so they would have been familiar with the, those brothers as well. And we know also that there were Christians in Rome because Paul had written his letter to the Romans in around 57. So the church in Rome had already been well established. Paul didn't establish the church in Rome. Somebody else did that. But at this point, the leadership among the Jews in Rome didn't want to commit themselves one way or the other. They were neither for him or against him. They simply wanted to hear his views. And, of course, Paul, being the Apostle Paul, was more than happy to share his views. Because he wanted them to know Christ. And so it was, a day was arranged for the Jews in Rome to come to Paul. And they came to him again at his home. Because remember, he's under house arrest. Now Luke tells us that they came in greater numbers than had appeared with him before. So before you had uh, the Jewish leadership from the synagogue, now you have, imagine a whole bunch of people packing into his his apartment in Rome, right? To hear, hear what he has to say. And so they packed into his dwelling as he testifies to the kingdom and expounds to them from the scriptures. And he did this from morning till evening. Aren't you glad that I don't preach from morning till evening? That'd be a long sermon. This is what he did. Now, we don't really know. That, you know what Luke gives us is a summary. Right? He gives us a summary that he expounded the scriptures from Moses, from the prophets. We don't know exactly what Paul said, other than he testified to the kingdom and tried to convince them about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did this from the law, he did this from the prophets. Which is to say, he used the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, to try to show Christ fulfilling all of these promises. But, even though we don't know specifically what Paul says... Based on his lines of argument among the Jews and other places, and we, we can see that in, the, in, in other places in Acts, and you can also, of course, see that in the epistles, um, we, we have a pretty good idea of probably uh, what he had said. We can deduce that Paul argued that Jesus is the Son of God, that he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He argued, though, from the Scriptures... He sought to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. All of the promises that were made in the Old Testament, the the Jews were looking forward to their Messiah. And Paul is saying, look, look where it says here. This is Jesus. This is what he was doing. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament promises. Jesus came to rescue His children. Jesus came to forgive sins. Jesus had come to usher His people into the eternal kingdom. Jesus is the promised King who was born of a virgin, who came to die for His people, who was vindicated as the Son of God, that is the second person of the Trinity, because He was raised from the dead. Paul surely demonstrated from the Scriptures that Jesus and the Kingdom promises stand together. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. The promises of redemption which were given to Adam and Abraham and Moses and David. All all of these promises of God realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Surely this is what Paul was doing from morning till evening. Demonstrated that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law which had come through Moses. You know, think about the, the sacrificial system. That, that the, the Jews would offer sacrifices morning and evening for the forgiveness of sin. That Jesus, that that was all pointing to Jesus. What Jesus did. That Jesus had fulfilled the curses of the law by becoming a curse for us. That Jesus fulfilled all of the law that we could not keep. That he was completely and fully obedient to God's law. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom as He is the King, which was foreshadowed in David. In fact, David was told through his line, God would establish His throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Who is that speaking of? Who is the one that that David was promised would sit on his throne? This is Jesus. He is the king. He is the king of kings who sits on David's throne forever. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the most righteous and true prophet and most uh, benevolent and just king. You see, the scriptures of the Old Testament, God's word, the Old Covenant, this is the, the word that the Jews, this was the word of God that the Jews had. It speaks of the Messiah. It speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ. We could, we could preach all of our sermons out of only the Old Testament, and we'd have lots to say about Jesus. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He fulfills all of it. He's the fulfillment of all of its promises. So Paul surely pointed to some of these passages, many others from the Old Testament, speaking about the ways in which Christ has fulfilled all that had been promised to them. This is why they were his brothers, because he considered, if you believe this, then you need to trust in Christ. Because He is the one who came to save sinners to rule and reign forever. 
And so, often as was the case, as Paul spoke and, and sought to persuade them, he, he presented them the gospel, demonstrating from the Old Testament the truth of who Jesus is, there were some who were convinced by what he said, but others who disbelieved. That phrase seems to constantly show up in Acts. Some believed, some didn't. Some of Paul's visitors were impressed by what he said. They had eyes to see, they had ears to hear. The Spirit was at work in their hearts. They had saving faith. But others, and it seems perhaps the majority, did not believe. They declined to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and King and Lord. And so they continued in unbelief. Luke records that there was a great disagreement among the Jews. But there was one statement which Paul makes which ultimately prompts their departure. And this is verse 25. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Go on, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This prophetic utterance from Isaiah, which Paul recounts to those meeting in his home, is a warning to not expect a favorable response to the gospel. People will hear but not understand. They will see but they will not perceive. This is a fact which has happened throughout history. Not only in Paul's ministry, but throughout church history. This has been, this has been your own experience, hasn't it? As you've, as you've shared the hope that's within you, some believe. But many don't. They continue in their unbelief. Jesus had even applied this to himself in the Gospels. These people who had heard the truth expounded from the Word of God. The Word that they themselves held in high regard did not believe. And so Paul adds, after he quotes from Isaiah, verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will believe. They will listen. Paul is saying, you know, you, you might reject the message of salvation. It's been demonstrated from your, the word of God that you believe. But you're rejecting it. But there are others... Who will believe. They will believe. They will turn. And God will heal them. In fact the Gentiles being included into God's covenant promises. Has always been a part of God's plan. Psalm 2. The Lord promises the sons. the, The Lord promises the son. That the nations would be his heritage. Jesus was always promised the nations. Christ came to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Well, after this meeting, Paul spent two years in Rome. 
And Luke tells us that he stayed at his own expense, preaching the gospel to all who would come to him. His circumstances didn't allow him to travel freely, so people came to him. But all who did come, he welcomed and proclaimed the kingdom of God and the teachings about Jesus Christ, Luke says, with all boldness and without hindrance. It's interesting. He is hindered, right? He's hindered because he can't go anywhere, and yet he was unhindered when it came to the preaching of the gospel. Paul did what any preacher of the word of God should do. He preached the kingdom of God. He preached the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he did so with boldness, and he did so without hindrance. The gospel was freely presented, and this was the focus of his ministry. The Word should always be the focus of gospel ministry. Too often preachers get sidetracked into other areas, such as politics or social causes or economics or psychology. Or, you know, there's a host of topics that are interesting. It's not that these are necessarily even bad topics of discussion. It's just not the central topic of discussion when it comes to gospel ministry. The main task of the preacher of God's word is to preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified and resurrected. This is the primary ministry of the church. To proclaim the excellencies of Christ. To point to Him. Paul proclaimed Him over and over and over again. Anybody who came, he preached Christ to them. This is really where the book ends. We're left at a cliffhanger. What happens to Paul? Luke doesn't tell us. We're left with this note of Paul doing what a gospel minister ought to do, preaching Christ. Church tradition tells us a number of other stories of what happens to Paul, but the Word of God leaves us here. Why? I think it's because, in the end, this isn't about Paul. You know, we've talked a lot about Paul. Paul's come up a lot in some sense. Paul is like an example, but in the end, it's not about Paul. At all. And I think this is the reason why it ends here. It's not about Paul, it's about Paul's Savior. It's about your Savior and mine. You see, the story of the church, which is what Acts is about, is the story of Christ. And that story, as we've said, is still being written. Not infallibly. We're not talking about, like, Scripture. That's not what we mean. What I mean is the church is expanding and growing, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And so church history continues to roll on and on, and God is still at work. Because it's about Christ. Jesus is building His church. Jesus is calling people out of darkness. He is calling people to repent and believe. 
We, as God's children, have been adopted into the family. If you trust and rest in Jesus Christ alone, then you are a son and an heir of all of God's promises. You are a member of the kingdom. The book of Acts narrates for us the basic truths of the scriptures, the history which continues. And so it is fitting, I think, that Acts ends as a cliffhanger. We still wonder what happens to Paul. Does he appear before Caesar? Is he set free? Is he put to death? What happens? It's fitting, though, it ends this way. Because what happens next to Paul was of little consequence. What was important and what is important is what Christ is doing even now. Paul was an important character, but he's not the main character of the story. Paul's life is one of pointing to the main character, Christ. And he did this unhindered. What does that mean for us? You and I must also proclaim Christ unhindered. The world around us is in darkness and in sin, living in rebellion against their Creator. They have been blinded, but we can bring light, and we can point them to the light, the light which shines in the world. The light of the gospel illuminates the hearts and lives of people who are dead in their sins. But the power of the Word and of the Spirit that can be made alive in Christ. We have the greatest message to share. This is why this church is being planted. And so the story of the church doesn't end in Acts chapter 28. It's just getting started. And it's continued on for the past 2,000 years. And will continue on until the day when Jesus returns again. In the meantime... You and I are to be found as faithful servants seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Oh, that we, the people of Covenant Reformed Church, may boldly speak of our Savior unhindered. And may God be pleased to work in and through us for the advancement of His kingdom and to His glory. May we be a people found pointing to Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that you are still at work, that you are building your church, that you are defeating the enemy. We pray, God, that we would be a people who are unhindered, that we would be, as Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel. For we understand its power in Christ. We pray, Father, that you give us opportunity to share the hope that's within us. May we seek your kingdom, not our own. May we be happy for the story not to be about us. May we understand and point to Christ. We thank you, God, for this, this study over the past year and a half in Acts and, and, and what you have done through it. And 
We pray, God, that we would continue to grow in your word. That Jesus is glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.